Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 19 tonight. We're, Deuteronomy 19 is going to get back into the cities of refuge. And for those of you that have been coming here week after week after week, we've heard of these cities of refuge in the past. And it's, so one of the assuring things for me is when you get to the Old Testament and you're thinking this thing's huge, it's this journey to get through it, but then you get these things that repeat, you realize, oh, it's not really that big of a list of things in the Old Testament because there's repeating in there. Um, and the concepts kind of keep coming back. So the first time we hit Cities of Refuge was back in Exodus 21. This is for my cross-reference people. And in Exodus 21, we were told that there would be Cities of Refuge, but it didn't get into it very much. And this is a progressive revelation. And then in Leviticus 23, we were told when they would get cities of refuge. When they came into the land, you're going to make these cities. So we started, we got the what, we got the when, and then in Numbers 35, you get the why you're gonna have cities of refuge. This is gonna be a place people can go when they're innocent and they wanna get somewhere. And then in Joshua, which we haven't got to yet, Joshua 20 is gonna talk about the exact places or the where the cities are gonna go. So they pick the cities, they pick the locations, so you got the what, when, why, and where. And then in this passage, we probably get the longest kind of description of how they're going to work. And we get the how of the city of refuge. Because this is the judicial piece, and cities of refuge are part of their judicial system. Um, so that's kind of contextually where we're at. It starts uh, with the how in Deuteronomy 19, verse 1. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Uh, you shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, that any manslayer may flee there. So the verbs in this, as we've seen in Deuteronomy, are with absolute certainty. When this happens, this is how it's going to be. You're going to dwell. This is what you shall do. The question of whether or not they'll conquer the land just isn't part of Moses' rah-rah speech. As he's sitting on the east side of the Jordan telling the Israelites we're about to go into the land. So all of this is in context to that. And he speaks with total certainty. The Abrahamic covenant of what's going to happen with Israel is not a changeable or debatable thing at this point. So I just wanted you to notice the verbs in these first few verses. The Mosaic Covenant is conditional, and that's an important Old Testament kind of principle. What God promised to Abraham, there is no if involved in that. This is what's going to happen. With Moses, there's lots of if. If you obey, then I will do these things. If you don't obey, I will do these things. And the interesting part is when you put those two together, you get kind of the Jesus Covenant. There are certain aspects of the Jesus covenant that are unconditional. 
like his love, the open door, the grace and forgiveness you get when you walk with Jesus. But there are some conditionals. And that is, if you walk in the Lord, there are these blessings that are part of your life and your afterlife based on how you walk and how you follow. And those pieces are conditional. But both of them in the Old Testament are kind of set up that way. And the choice then on the conditional stuff, the choice always goes back to the human. If you as a human do these things, these are the things you can expect. So God knows what's going to happen. He knows that if he explains both paths, then humans have kind of a legitimate choice on how to do this. God commands a road network in verse 3, which is an interesting thing. You don't expect to see road construction uh, dictums in the book of Deuteronomy, but here we are. Um, There's a purpose to these roads. Not only the incidental benefit of roads is going to be a huge economic benefit to Israel because people then make this, if you're going to go north or south from Russia to Africa, this is where the roads are. So you're going to pick this route. If you're going to go from the Mediterranean to anywhere over to Asia, this becomes the crossroads of the world. And even today when Israel has open borders and trade, this is just an optimal place to put a port that kind of connects to three different continents. Uh, And biblically speaking, Israel is the center of the planet. And so if you look at European maps, it's still kind of there. If you look at United States maps, we like to put ourselves in the middle of the planet. Um, But at least in this point, you have this road network that's going to be built here. The purpose of the roads, though, is not economic. Um, The purpose of the roads is going to be this act of mercy or this opportunity for people to find mercy. I love the city's refuge. We're going to take some time with this because I think the imagery is just beautiful. Nothing should get in the way of this. In In rabbinic tradition, they would go out every year, you know, like when you adopt a highway and you go out and clean the trash up once a year as a company. They would do that with these roads. All the rabbis would get out, pick their tassels up off the ground, and they would go clean everything off these roads to keep these roads clear. Because what they didn't want in the road was anything that would cause someone to stumble if they were running to a city of refuge. Because if you're using these roads, you're probably at a full run because you got somebody behind you, this avenger of blood. So they would go out and clear off what were called stumbling blocks. And the image of the stumbling block is a spiritual image that gets used in the New Testament. No stumbling blocks. If you're running for mercy, you don't want things that are going to trip people up and have the adventure of blood catch them, right? So the rabbis would go out and clear these roads, in part because of verse 3. You're going to go out and you're going to have these roads. You're going to keep them clear. Um, Nothing should get in the way. And the most important use of these roads are when people are in trouble. Like the roads are just, you know, there's not a lot of traveling happening in the ancient world. You take care of your sheep. Your sheep don't like to take vacations. So you're pretty much with your sheep all the time. The only time you really need these roads is if you're a merchant or if you're somebody running for your life to get to a city of refuge. So it's kind of an interesting image. It says you shall prepare the roads uh, and what they're doing. And I just, this image of preparing the roads and making them straight and keeping on the narrow becomes an image that gets used throughout the Bible. So this is no small thing. It's like, okay, we're in road construction in Deuteronomy, but look at how Isaiah uses it in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Stuff says I should pause, but I don't hear anybody flipping to Isaiah 40, verse 3. So I'll just read Isaiah 40, verse 3, and you can keep your spot in Deuteronomy. So here it is. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places made smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Interesting passage. When Isaiah is writing that as a word from God, he's probably thinking of these roads that get made straight. So the Roman, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people would go to great efforts to make these roads straight and easy to travel. And sometimes in the desert, they would be narrow because they would raise up the valleys. They would lower mountains, just like when we do highways today. If you want to go fast, you don't want a lot of hard roads to travel. So they would make these roads as straight as they could. The priests then were supposed to keep those roads open and the paths clear. So that mirrors God's image of how we can go to him, that the path is clear and straight. And it's supposed, he had priests taking care of the roads because they were a priestly duty. This was something that was a religious image that God wanted them to have. And this is also part of what Jesus took issue with, with the Pharisees. Matthew 23:13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for, ne- for you neither go in yourselves, nor do, nor do you allow people who are entering to go in. These cities of refuge are supposed to be wide open doors for anybody to go into. And part of the issue with the Pharisees is they made it hard to get the blessing of God's kingdom. And it was one of the things God took issue with because these roads are supposed to be clear. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. God didn't want the burden to be heavy. That was the whole point. There should be these cities of refuge. So, I mean, in verse 4, it gets into the who gets to go to the city of refuge. And there's some rules around this. Verse 4, and in this case, the manslayer who flees there that he may live, whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past. Like, for instance, verse 5, we get an example. When a man goes into the woods with his neighbor to cut some timber, and the hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree, and the head slips off the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. This is a graphic image. Like this is a little cutscene in a movie that's like, ooh. He shall flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursues the manslayer and overtakes him, because the way is long, and kill him, though he was not deserving of death, since he hadn't hated the victim in the time past. It was an accident. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. Remember, there's already three cities east of the Jordan. There's going to be another three cities on the west side of the Jordan. Um, Manslayer is a very narrow term to be using for this passage. It's not just anybody that would run there. It was somebody that was worthy of death that would run to these cities. And we, I think I read this passage last time we did Cities of Refuge because I just like the little vignette of the people off in the woods and the axe handle slips off. Remember, these are ancient tools. Axe handles slip off. It happens. And when you're moving large stones and large boulders or when you're doing you know, any kind of physical labor work, there were things that would happen and people would die. And it was just a rougher world to live in and they didn't have chainsaws. So things would happen as they were doing all this kind of thing. When that happens, the rule was, and this isn't unique to Israel, all ancient cultures had a version of this rule. If somebody gets killed and they're your family, your family gets to assign an avenger of blood and the avenger of blood gets to go out and make things right. So this is Hatfields and McCoy kind of stuff. And it gets nuts. You would have these blood feuds that would go on multiple generations between families. There's still cultures like this in the world today. 
And what God does is he puts a limit on this vindictive, vengeful stuff. And he makes some rules around it and frankly turns it into kind of a fun game. Maybe this is the beginning of the Olympics. Um, there would be these cities you could run to. So if your axe head falls off and it kills the person next to you, don't stop and try to help them. Run to the nearest city and try to save yourself, assuming they're already dead, of course. If they're partially dead, you should probably try to help them because then you don't need to run. But if you do need to run, you just bolt. You go. You don't even go home. You don't go back to your house and fetch your stuff. You just pick up and run because the game is on. Someone is going to chase you. As soon as they find the body, they're going to pick. They're not going to pick the slowest person in the family. They're going to pick the best athlete they have that can finish the deal. So there were probably families that had already designated, if something happens to one of us, we're sending you. And you're the one that's going to go do this. We're sending Zach. Zach's going to go out and hunt him down and make sure it's over. So Zach even prepares his mind for this. Like, I'm ready at any time. Somebody hurts my family, I'm, it's go time, we're on. And the race was on, and that's what would happen, is the avenger of blood would get them. So when they say in verse 6, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursues the man and overtakes him. So they would tackle him right on the road and kill him. And that was kind of how this happened. But you had a head start, because when the, when the accident happens, you got a lead. And if you can keep that, you can get to that city of refuge. Therefore... It's a big deal that there's three of these cities of refuge. It shouldn't be too far. It should never be too far to get to God's refuge. It should never be out of reach. It should always be something you can get to. And the road is straight and there's no stumbling blocks and it's easy. The only reason you wouldn't be able to get there is if you don't run. You know, if you take a leisurely stroll, the Avenger of Blood's running, they're gonna catch you pretty quick. So you gotta go and you go now, you don't wait. The hour of repentance is now. You don't stop or do anything. You just get there and you do it. So manslayer is an odd term. It's somebody who then is worthy of death or worthy of being killed. We get in a specific example of this accident. Clearly, this is a heart matter. Going back to like Exodus 21, the motive behind the killing is very important. If you didn't intend to do it, that's manslaughter, which is where we get the term. Um, and if you are intending to do it, that's murder. And they're very different things. So the law of the heart then is what contemns, contemns the wicked. The law equally then protects the innocent. Because people who are guilty of murder should have to pay that price. And the innocent, if they can get to the city of refuge, actually get their day in court and they can state their case. Because an avenger to blood doesn't want to hear why you killed one of their family members. It's not a discussion. So this creates kind of a court system. It's kind of a neat idea. It tells you why innocent people love the law of God, because the law of God protects the innocent. It also tells you why people that are living in their sin hate the law of God, because this stuff is just nonsense. Why not just take care of it? Why would you protect someone when they deserve death? So those people who love this, it's a refuge. To the wicked, this is like a lifetime being put in jail. You have to leave your family go away from everything and you got to live in this city of refuge so the family then by the way is obligated to exact revenge according to the ancient world like it's not an option you have to do it so if nobody in your family wants to be the avenger of blood there were traditions where you could hire an avenger of blood so there are people that made this their profession they would just sit around and wait for a phone call and they would pick up and go and chase somebody down and kill them. And it's, they had bounty hunters. 
that would go after and do this and try to exact revenge for families. Grant's just sitting there with this big grin on his face like, that sounds like a great job. No, Grant, it's not a great job. They were called the Goel, is kind of the Hebrew word for it, a meaning avenger of blood. Um, and you got to see who won the race. So the idea of the city of refuge is that you wanted to get to that city of refuge. What you didn't want to have happen is you got locked out, like what Jesus said to the Pharisees, and then you're left out in the cold. And being left in the cold is not good. And here in Minnesota, we know that. Like, that's not a good thing for us. But for those people that can get there, they got a cup of hot cocoa, you get to sit down, your court date is coming, relax, breathe, and you get to sit in the, in the warming house until you have your day in, in court. Verse 8, now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers and gives you land which he promised to give to your fathers, and if you can keep all the commandments and do them, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and walk and to walk always in his ways. By the way, just verse 9, we just keep seeing that throughout Deuteronomy. The whole purpose of the law is that if you love the Lord your God, you'll do what he commands you to do. That loving and doing go hand in hand throughout Deuteronomy. It's continually emphasized. Then you shall add three more cities, the end of verse 9, your, uh, for yourself besides these three. The idea is if God, if they're obedient and God does eventually expand their territory, they're going to add cities to match so it's never too far to run to get to a city of refuge. It's always within reach. Verse 10, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus the guilt of bloodshed be on you. This is why the rabbis got out and cleared the roads. It's because if somebody got killed because they didn't do their job, they were guilty of murder for not keeping those roads cleared. And that's what Jesus accused them of. You guys are shutting up these cities and innocent people can't get to you. You haven't made it easy for people to get into the kingdom. So... Um, also growth of Israel one thing you could say is Israel hasn't really grown since ancient times remember if you go all the way back to Abraham's covenant the description of Israel to Abraham was much larger than what it geographically is today so it went all the way to the Tigris Euphrates for instance and we have not seen those borders to Israel so in most religious traditions that scene is still prophetic and that Israel's not reached those size. As a country, it hasn't ever gotten to its full size yet. But when it does, it should have cities of refuge. So, what if they are found, they get to the city of refuge, and they investigate this and look into the issue, and they found that this person is guilty. They go back into their house, they find detailed sketch drawings of this elaborate plan, to kill so-and-so. It looks like Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner thing. They bring him in, and the Avenger of Blood says, this person was plotting this whole thing. It's a scam. And they're found guilty. Verse 11, if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him, strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of the city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the Avenger of Blood, the Goel that he may die. And your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel, that it may go well with you. There is a judgment process that goes on in these cities of refuge. And the guilty then can also run to a city of refuge and they can ask for sanctuary. They can. 
and the rabbis have a choice to make or a judgment that gets made. So you run to the refuge city, judgment is still going to happen. It doesn't erase the judgment. And when that judgment happens, there is a chance that you can not be saved in a city of refuge, that you will be cast out. That can happen. Notice the verb progression here. Hating, lying, rising, striking, and then fleeing. Right? There is this kind of idea that there's a progression of things that happen in this process, starting with hatred itself. Hating your neighbor is something you can be guilty of. That is not something that will protect you in the day of judgment. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. 1 John 3, 5. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka is in danger of the council, which are all happening in these cities of refuge. That's where these lines from Jesus come from. That's Matthew 5. 22. And at the end of Matthew 5.22, whoever says you fool is in danger of the hellfire. It's the heart. It's not if you actually kill the person. It's if you hate him before killing him. So the hatred itself is what you're being judged on. The guilty then are not protected in the city of refuge. This would mean if like my parents sent me out to go collect some lumber and I had to go with that kid in my class that I really didn't like, I would lobby for not going on that trip in case my axe head fell off because everybody in my class would know we didn't like each other. And if they can prove that there was animosity beforehand, or if you're a smarter kid, you try to get along with everybody so that nobody can prove any animosity, that you live with as much peace as possible with everyone you know. So when you get to the city of refuge, there's no judgment against you. When the council meets and they gather and make judgment over you, there's nothing to judge you on. You have right relations with everybody. Jewish people called this shalom that you have peace with everyone you deal with because it protects you in the day of judgment. Does this make sense? Like this is deep Jewish stuff coming out of these passages. So this refuge idea, this picture, and if you haven't already picked up where I'm going with this, I want to take a little more time. This is an awesome picture of Jesus. And the whole thing sets up a culture of people ready for Jesus when he shows up. So I came up with, I lost count, I started adding in 9.5 and 3.5. So I don't know how many. These are all the different ways this kind of fits with the Jesus that we believe in. Way number zero. My number is not very good. Those who kill the old man so that they may live can do this. There is this idea back in verse four that there's a manslayer going on. Part of the image of Christ is that we have to kill the old man so the new man can live. When you come to Christ, you sacrifice your life. It's not an other person that you kill, but you become a manslayer of yourself. And you say, Lord, I, you can have my life. I give it up and, and I'm going to run to you for refuge. And it is kind of a, a, a formula that works that way. That one's a stretch, but these aren't. Verse three, it's easy to reach. Super easy to reach Jesus. Super easy to reach Jesus. You just say a prayer. Number, this is my number 1.5. It's open to anybody. And you get to, in Numbers 35, 15, you just get this idea that the city of refuge is open to anybody, not just as Jewish people. It's open to the Gentiles too. When Jesus came along, that was one of the messages. Sinners have an option. They can choose to run there or not. People can be a stumbling block in reaching them. We get this in the epistles. Don't be a stumbling block to somebody. If they're pursuing God and a life with God, don't get in the way of that. 
clear that stuff out of the way and do everything you can do to clear the roads because you're a holy priesthood. It's your job to make it easy and straight for people to come into the kingdom. And there shouldn't be stumbling blocks. Keep the road clear. There's another one in verse 6. There's a race against time, right? There's someone chasing you. And there's, there's not something you should wait on. You don't lazily walk to the kingdom. You run to the kingdom. You flee from evil. Don't even look back to see how close the avenger is behind you. You'll hear the steps. You have to then live in the city of refuge. You don't just get to go there on vacation. Once you run to the city, you have to stay there because the only thing that frees you from the city of refuge, once you make up residence there, is when the high priest dies. So the death of the high priest is the thing that gives freedom in the same way that when Jesus dies on the cross, that is actually the act that frees us from a city of refuge. There's protection for only people that come within the boundaries, Numbers 35, verse 26 through 28. There's no protection for people outside the city of refuge. The same way in the kingdom, when you go before the judgment seat, outside of Christ, there's no protection outside of that city of refuge. Here's another one. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way but by him, John 14, 6. Jesus is the only place you can run. You can't run to just any place. You have to run to a city of refuge. There's only one place to run where you're going to get your day in court. Judgment actually happens in city of refuge. Running to Jesus does not get you out of judgment. There will be a process where you are judged. The only difference is when you are judged with a city of refuge, you don't really know the turnout or the results before you get into your court day. With Jesus, you do know the results because he's going to step in and say, they are guilty, they are a manslayer, they are worthy of death, and I'm going to take that death for them. This one's on me. I'm paying this debt. And they step in. And so you kind of know the results because Christ has made a promise that that judgment will still happen. It just, the punishment won't land on you. It's going to land on Jesus and already has. Here's another one. The priest's job is to investigate the truth and make a judgment call. Hebrews 4.14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Pretty much the entire book of Hebrews talks about this connection between Christ as our high priest and how he steps in. Verses 11 and 12 in our chapter, cities of refuge are not a harbor for the hateful people. They're not a place where hateful murderers get to live and reside and hang out. They actually get cast out. Jesus talked about a wedding feast and everybody was invited and the door was open. And in fact, the people he initially invited didn't bother to show up. So he just started inviting everybody on the street. And then when the place was full, the doors were shut and nobody else was let in. Jesus tells another story. People come to a wedding feast, but they're not dressed for it. They're not ready for it. They just kind of look sloppy and they get thrown out. So in the same way, you can run to a city of refuge, but if what's in your heart is hate, you're going to get cast out and there's going to be a judgment. Death of the high priest is my 9.5. Uh, numbers 35, that's how you get, when you can leave the city of refuge, is when that standing high priest passes away. Justice is blind in these cities. Uh, your eye should, what you see with your eyes should not matter to the priests. They, they should judge without partiality. There should be no favoritism whatsoever. Verse 13, it says, we don't pity people when we do this. You don't not give judgment because you like the person. You have to give the judgment even if that's what's deserved to be there. So that's a 
a tough truth for us to hear sometimes. Jesus speaks, and, and I thought this was because I was trying to think, where do you see that in the New Testament, that Jesus doesn't show favoritism? Because it seems like he likes his disciples and he doesn't like the Pharisees. That seems like favoritism for me. But one of the things that was said about Jesus, this is really interesting in light of the city's refuge, Matthew 22 and Mark 12 both have the same story. And it says, we know that you are true, talking about Jesus, and you care about no one. And you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. Matthew 22:16. if you want to look these up, or Mark 12, verse 14. It's a really curious phrase that's thrown into there. They actually tell Jesus, as a compliment, you don't care about anyone. And we don't see that very much in church on Sunday mornings. That's not a teaching that most pastors jump at. But they're saying, Jesus, you don't care about people. That makes you such a good teacher. Well, it makes... It's not that the caring the way we talk about caring, but it's this idea that Jesus doesn't care who he shares his love with. He doesn't care who is in front of him when he teaches. And a judge shouldn't care who's in front of them when they judge. It doesn't matter who's in front of you. You teach without partiality. You don't give the nice seats to the rich people and the bad seats to the poor people. Whoever shows up first gets whatever seat they want. That's not caring about people's identity when you start to decide where people land in the church. So... Both Matthew and Mark say, you care about no one, you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. Everybody gets to hear the truth and everybody gets justice. So there's one huge difference between the cities of refuge and Jesus, and I should point this one out. In the city of refuge, there's three kinds of people that run there. There's the innocent, there's the guilty that are lying about being innocent, and then there's the guilty that are unrepentant of what they did. So you can get those three kinds of people. In the city of refuge, both kinds of guilty get killed and the innocent live. That's justice. With Jesus, everyone can fall before the throne, but it switches. The the guilty that are repentant can be saved. And if we're all guilty, that's super good news. In fact, that's the good news is that we can get saved even if we're guilty of sin. So we don't have to be purely innocent. That pretty much is Jesus fits in that category. And then you've got these other people that are the repentant sinners. And thankfully with Jesus, because he takes the punishment, um, those people get to live. And in their mouth there was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. There won't be an option for the guilty to lie and get refuge with Jesus, because he knows the heart already. So there's no way in which you can kind of lie. The only thing you can do is throw yourself at his mercy and repent of what you're doing. That's super good news. At least if you've repented of your sins. If you haven't, that's really bad news. And this is not a safe place for you. But if you're willing to say, yes, I'm a sinner, and you say that to the Lord, this is really good news because he'll forgive you of that. All right, I'll keep going. Then you get this weird verse 14 thrown in here. It's almost like it was written in the margins or something like that. And don't remove your labor's landmark. Don't remove your neighbor's landmark which the men of old have set. In your inheritance, which you will inherit the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you to possess. (laughs) So why is that here? It seems out of place that we go from cities of refuge to not moving fences, right? These landmarks are where the land boundary was. First of all, by the way, this is the ancient history moment when appraisal uh, and land valuation and site determination and um, it gets kind of invented. So that's kind of a cool moment because 
suddenly these boundaries become personal property. And to have personal property means you can take care of something and be a steward of something over time. Deuteronomy, remember, I'm going to argue this isn't totally out of place, and here's why. Deuteronomy, remember, from a few times ago, is kind of Moses is going back through the law. It's the second telling of the law, and he's kind of going through all the commandments. So there's unique situations, but we just covered what happens with murder and how the Leviticus priesthood should be judging and dealing with murderers, manslayers, right? So that's commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. So we just dealt with that. Then you got adultery. There aren't really rules on that that are special, unique situations. So adultery just kind of gets skipped in this telling of the law. Though it's you should not commit adultery, it's kind of self-evident. Um, and Leviticus 20.10 pretty much covers what they're supposed to do with adultery. And then you get stealing and handling, though thou shalt not steal, commandment number eight. So when you look at verse 14, it's actually in order. Because we moved from murder, skipped over um, commandment number seven, and now we're hitting verse commandment number eight. And then down in verse 15, it goes right into false witness or lying, which would be commandment number um, nine. Thou shalt not lie or bear false witness. Make sense? So these are actually kind of in order. It's just the amount of attention given to each commandment is dramatically different. And the commandment on stealing really is this unique situation where you could kind of steal in secret. Like it's not overt stealing. That got covered in earlier. Um, but it's taking and moving these boundary stones, which then you come back and argue, well, wait, that's the, the boundary stone. And you can say, oh, I didn't move it. And you can kind of play innocent. You can move boundary stones because they're way out in the country and nobody sees you doing it. But there are things where people could come back and then argue and come before the priests and say, this guy moved the boundary stones. And the other guy says, no, I didn't. And they have to go back to their records where they have done plat, um, blot, lot and block kind of measurements. And they have to go back out and re-measure it and say, actually, these boundary stones were moved. Who did this moving? And then you can, you can figure that out. So personal property becomes kind of a command of God. To cheat on personal property is a kind of stealing, and it gets defined that way. And I always say it wouldn't be there if somebody hadn't tried to do it. So my guess is Moses is getting into this because he's seen this happen before. Or one of his people that were doing judging came running in and said, hey, somebody just moved the line that we had set up for him. And Moses had to deal with some of this. Um, there's a spiritual principle here too, and I don't want to miss the spiritual principle. Don't move the stones that the men of old have set. Sometimes in the church we do new things and we don't wonder why they are the way they are before we want to move or change them. And some things are good and worth keeping. Some are legalism and they need to get tossed. But consideration before moving forward on anything is one time questioning, well, maybe there's a reason this rule was here. And sometimes in the church we have those boundaries where one generation should consider what the previous generation had did or said before they go moving and changing things. So then you get into the law concerning witnesses, the ninth commandment in verse 15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. This is the same as Deuteronomy 17, uh, verse 6, witnesses in aid or an aid. One who gives concrete, specific testimony of events. One witness is not enough because a good liar can come up with specific uh, retellings of events. 
Um, it, or even one teller can get confused. So if you interview somebody today and then interview them in three weeks, their story can change dramatically even with just one person. So a modern court uses this line of evidence too. Only today we've started to include more technical things as a line of evidence or a witness. So DNA evidence can be a line of evidence or witness in a court case. So you can have a human witness and you can have fingerprint witness. And so we use this same kind of principle in the courts today. One thing never convicts somebody. You gotta have multiple things that line up with the story that's being told. If a false witness, verse 16, rises against any man to testify him of wrongdoing, false witness there is kamas. Um, interestingly enough, if you pronounce that without a hard C, Hamas, it's where the word Hamas comes from. So a Hamas is false. So you can tell who named Hamas was probably not the Palestinians. It's probably the Israelis that named that or came up with that name. But Hamas is false in the Hebrew. Um, it has the implication of violence. So when you lie about somebody, you're doing violence to that person. It's actually a horrendous offense throughout the Old Testament. Uh, there is a cruel oppression and injustice that comes with someone that would lie. Verse 17, this is the, I think Katie brought this up before, like if someone makes a false accusation and they're found to be false, this is what the, this is what the Jewish people are told to do. Then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false Hamas witness who's testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as though as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. So this is interesting. What if there was a false accusation? I know this is a hard to imagine, but what if in America somebody made a false accusation against somebody else? You bring them both in, you do careful inquiry, verse 18, you find out the truth of the matter, and if it's found to be a false witness, then whatever that accusation was gets applied to the false witness. So if someone falsely accuses someone of murder or rape or fixing elections, and it's found to be not true, they're actually then held guilty for that. So false witness is a big deal to the Jewish people because it is the foundation of the court system. You have to have it there. And when someone is caught in a lie, you don't let it go. They get punished for it. So if you're going to lie about someone, here's the spiritual principle for today. If you're going to lie about somebody, lie about things like messing up the sock drawer or not folding the clothes right. Because then if you're guilty, held guilty of it, because we have a trial, of course, and figure out that you're lying about all these things, then it's, well, you have to then go redo the sock drawer because that's what you're accusing the other person of. Don't accuse people of murder because then we have to, you know, go through with a death penalty or something like that. Like you don't accuse of those big, very serious things. You tell the truth about those things. Yet we live in a society today where accusations and lies are actually a strategic tool. And, it, and, it, and it's a horrifying thing to see a country where the courts are used for lies to be told and spread instead of courts being a sanctuary for the innocent. And when you have to go and defend against a false witness, it's a horribly difficult thing to do because you have to then prove a negative. And you can't prove negatives because there's no evidence that the negative never happened. So it's a horrid situation when you have people that use the courts to lie about other people. 
And it becomes something that God acts strongly with when you look at verses 17 and 18 and 19. If people reject God's mercy and decide to use the courts in that kind of way, it's an absolute repudiation of the God of the Jews and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who loves truth and is truth. So it becomes an offense not just against the person you're lying about, but offense against God himself. This is why in the American courtroom, and this might be going away within our generation, we would come into a courtroom, and what's the first thing you do before you bear witness? Put your hand on a Bible and say you're going to tell the truth. Because the foundational aspect of that is right here. That if you lie in a courtroom, you're destroying not just that person that you're lying about, you're actually destroying yourself in the eyes of God. You'll be held guilty for those lies. So in a biblically literate society, that's an amazingly powerful moment when you swear on the Bible that you're going to tell the truth. You're acknowledging and recognizing that you are speaking truth before the God of the universe. And this is, makes for great movie moments too, when they, the good lawyers get them and they ask the right question and they're like, okay, I have to speak truth because I don't want to be held guilty for this. So it's a tough moment. This is what was going on in Matthew to show how corrupt this all got. Oh, you thought I was talking about today. Really, we're going to talk about, you know, this is what happened by Jesus' time, is that they were in these moments, and they kept bringing up false witnesses for Jesus. They just kept rolling them in. And when they couldn't get two stories that lined up, they just kept rolling in more witnesses until they could get two stories to line up. That's how corrupt it was when Jesus showed up on the scene. It was horrible. So we're not at that point yet. Matthew 26, verses 59 now the chief priests and elders of, and all the council, because the council is who does this judging, sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. They found none. Yeah, though many witnesses came, they couldn't find two that lined up. And the last, and at the last, they came up with two false witnesses. Amazing, like a Holy Spirit event. You'd think if you just bring in enough people, you could get two that could agree on something. You know, you could even plan ahead of time. Well, let's just say he said this. But something was going on with the Holy Spirit where they couldn't do it. And they, they couldn't actually be as corrupt as they wanted to be. And it was in part because Jesus was innocent and God himself was protecting them in this kind of holy sanctuary of judgment. There should have been then, when Jesus is found innocent, all of those people that bore false witness should have been crucified with Jesus. If you think about it, there should have been scores of people that were killed if they were sticking true to this rule. Because they're accusing Jesus of blasphemy, worthy of death. He should, they should have been killed alongside him when they were discovered to have bore false witness. Because they're calling them false witnesses in Matthew. The institutional corruption is falling away from the Old Testament, is my point. It's not the Old Testament that was corrupt. It's the fact that the Jews had so corrupted the Old Testament that they had a system that wasn't working anymore. This is a dangerous point. This is when God moves in the universe, and that should be exciting for us. When systems that God has set up that are holy and true and just and right start to become that corrupted, God lifts his hands off those people and he starts to bless other groups of people. And he has historically through all history. And you see these nations rise and fall since Jesus came that have blessing and then they lose blessing. Great book called The Rise and Fall of Nations kind of tracks all of that. Verse 20. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and wherever they shall not again commit such evil among you. The whole point of this is to, so that everybody can see that you don't do this. 
think if this happened, if we had somebody that came up, and we've had this a lot in the last 10 years. People will publicly say someone did something horrible, and then later it's found to be not true. They weren't even in the room together or something like that. But the press just does a little correction, no big deal. But the damage is already done to that public figure. What happens if then those people then had to pay the price or the penalty for that behavior? You went back and then you prosecuted the false accuser. There would be some justice in that. But the whole point, verse 20, is the rest of us would be like, okay, maybe that shouldn't be our strategy. Because if we get caught, it's serious business. So the whole point is deterrence. One of the things you hear a lot of time is that consequences don't deter crime. There's even whole people with PhDs that do whole research projects on this. They're in direct contradiction to the word of God. So you can twist the numbers however you want to say there isn't a deterrent with a just system. The Bible says that people can hear of these situations and then fear those consequences for themselves and that those things do deter crime. And by the way, there's very easy ways to look up crime rates. And if you want to narrow it down to a small sample, it's pretty easy to make whatever case you want with the data. If you just look at US crime and see what's been going on, clearly the less stringent we get with our laws, the more crime we have. And the more higher crimes don't get dealt with, lower crimes just populate even more. To the point where you have people running through streets burning people's businesses and don't even get punished for it. And nothing seems to happen. Um, New York had this problem because people were jumping over the turnstiles in the subways. And so they started to actually bring consequences to turnstile jumping. And what they found is there was far less graffiti throughout the subway system when they just went after turnstile jumping. So great researchers, Erickson and Erickson, applied this to school systems too. And they found that when teachers care about waiting till the bell rings before releasing students from class, and they started to deal with the really little things, the not so moral things, but the small things, they had far less problems with the big things. They just went away. So having a disciplined society has huge ramifications and God wants that for his people. He wants an orderly, just system. And those consequences are things where you don't cringe from consequences because what you're trying to do is create peace for everybody else. We're to be holy because God's holy. And in a societal level, when you're dealing and instructing judges on how to judge cases, that's the eye that judges should have when they judge their cases. So then you get to this very difficult, famous Old Testament verse. But the setup is important. Verse 21, your eye shall not pity. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's for the sock drawer stuff. Oftentimes when people critique the Bible, they say, oh, the Old Testament's just cruel. It's that eye for an eye stuff. Have you ever heard that? It's just eye for eye stuff. Paul's never heard it. Paul, you got to get out more. Um, the context of this, it, it was one of those things where you just say, did you read the whole chapter? Or are you just citing something that somebody else said? So there is a context to that verse. And the context is, this is what you do to people who bear false witness. If they lie about the feet then they get punished at their feet. If they lie about a life, they get punished with their life. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And these are instructions to Levitical priests on how to judge in the assembly in a city of refuge when somebody's running to have their case. So when you're a judge in a courtroom, that verse might apply to how you act and how you deal with justice. 
It is not a biblical principle in the Bible. It is not even an Old Testament principle. It's a very specific principle in context of false witnesses. Does that make sense? Like this stuff gets me sometimes. This is stuff where I'd just be like, show me that mistake in the Bible. And then you get stuff like that and you're like, oh, you haven't even read it. Like if you're gonna critique the Bible, at least read it first before you just regurgitate somebody's critique. Like that's not how you do this. So if they give false witness about murder, they're treated as murderers. Eye for an eye, life for a life. That's, the, that's how it should match up. And Moses is making that clear. Truth actually matters is the point of this verse. It matters to tell the truth. And there should be a deterrent to false witnesses as we talk about that command in the larger context of the book of Deuteronomy. False witness is evil and you have to deal with it. So when people twist the truth and they corrupt it, um, it sickens the whole population and the whole people. But this is not something, this is actually the opposite of the Avenger of Blood Goel system, where it's like, boy, you killed my brothers, I'm gonna kill you, eye for an eye, hand for hand. That's actually, that principle of that situation, personal vengeance, personal vengeance is dealt with with cities of refuge, where you actually don't get to act on those instincts. We just, it's in the same chapter as the one we just talked about. This is what blows me away. Like it's a total misreading of that verse. Outside of the courts in day-to-day -day life, mercy and refuge and a court deliberation over situations where both sides get heard. Not eye for eye, not tooth for tooth. In a court system, lying witnesses get applied what they deserve or what they accuse someone else of that gets applied to them. So in day-to-day -day life, this becomes something that's a tendency. And frankly, this was twisted by Jesus's time too. You are not obligated to retaliation in any way, shape, or form under Mosaic law and under Old Testament principles. In fact, in personal dealings, you're supposed to have shalom with people as much as possible. So if someone strikes you, in a personal relationship as a godly person, you have every option in the Old Testament to not strike them back. You don't have to. You can just let it go and have peace with that person because you don't want to prove hate that you hated them because if accidentally they die from an ax head that flies off your handle, you can then be held guilty because you're in the middle of it. So even under Old Testament law, the principle is someone strikes you on the face, turn the other cheek because you don't want any evidence of your hatred towards them ever. So Jesus kind of makes this point really clear. He says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. They were already twisting this by Jesus' time. But I say to you, don't resist evil. Whoever smites you on your cheek, turn the other cheek to them also. Jesus is just teaching what Deuteronomy already said. He's just read the book. Actually, he wrote the book. I mean, that's depending on your perspective on that. This is not about a courtroom judgment when you talk about personal relationships. In personal relationship, kindness and mercy should rule. In courtroom relationships, you have to set an example for the society. And none of that changes. Jesus even says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Let the courts do their thing. Let justice play out how it's going to play out. Because at a societal level, you have different set of rules than at a personal level. And Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. And his kingdom was how we deal with each other with acts of love between each other. It's awesome stuff. It's beautiful stuff. That's why I get worked up when I hear people critique this stuff. This isn't mean or cruel or harsh. 
this is beautiful. Yes, I want justice in my courts. Bad people should be punished. I like a society where people are scared to do bad things, where there's a fear of the law, right? And there's a healthy fear of those things. Jesus then doesn't change the law at all. He just holds the Pharisees to it. And he says, you've forgotten. He often starts with the Pharisees and says, have you not read? Have you, have you not actually read the book? And he loves that response. So I like to use that too, but it really ticks people off. They start looking at you like, holy moly. Especially the people that have puffed themselves up and they've thrown this stuff out like they know things. And it's like, if you're going to know things, you should know them. And this is just like a personal thing for me. Like if you're going to be a professor and you're going to profess things, you should have actually read it before you go and profess things that are nonsense or lies. Don't do that. Be good to people you teach. Again, if somebody says God's word is broken, if they say it's flawed, that it's mistaken, that Moses is too harsh, or that their people are bearing false witness to the word of God when they do that, you then have a choice. And I hope this choice is joyful because God will protect you, maybe. When they do that and they bear false witness against God's word, as a holy priesthood, you now have a responsibility. God's word just got brought into the courtroom. So you can just walk away from it. Personal relationships, maybe that's the choice you make. And that's a good choice. Like people don't come to heaven because they lose an argument. But boy, if you want to let that accusation against God's word fly, you're held responsible for letting that injustice go too. So you're held accountable for that if it doesn't get dealt with. There's this kind of tough thing. So strategies for doing this. I've yet to hear someone critique the word of God where it wasn't actually just absolute regurgitation of what somebody else said. It's not like I've met someone yet who reads the word of God and actually finds something for themselves going, hmm, that's inconsistent. And then they bring that into a pastor and go, I was reading and I just, this doesn't make sense to me. Usually that's when you have that conversation, it's because they're trying to make sense of the word of God. But I've yet to find somebody who says there's errors in the Bible. And you know, you've been in this Bible study long enough. You've seen this happen in this Bible study where there's like, well, there's errors in the Bible. Where are the errors? And usually they're saying there's errors because another human being said there were errors and they're just regurgitating what they heard. It's rarely, if ever, and I'm saying if ever, because I'm sure somebody originally found these errors, but it's usually just regurgitated stuff. And they're held accountable for that too. So you have a choice. If this person's bearing false witness, they're endangering their own soul. So you can be Minnesota nice with them and love them all the way to hell. Because that's what you're doing when you do that. Or you can lovingly and gracefully say, do you want to have a conversation about that? Let's talk because I love you and I care about you. And you just bore false witness against God's word. You really want that fight? You want to pick that battle? So let's let's work out these things in a graceful, loving way. And I would say that to everybody in this room. If you have heard of errors in the Bible, identify them. Like, let's stop doing things on hearsay and vague aspersions against the Bible. Get specifics. What verse? What word? What is it in the Hebrew? So as a high priest, you can use the same principles that we've already been taught in the book of Deuteronomy. First, show them a city of refuge. You know, I'm clinging to the word of God and I'm betting my life on it. This is my city of refuge. I live in this city. So when you critique the word of God and there's a flaw in that word, man, I got to know because the avenger of blood, the goel, you might not want to use this language exactly, (laughs) paraphrase, the goel is after me. 
And if the city of refuge has cracks in it, I would like to know where those cracks are because I'm going to go mortar those suckers up and I want to fix that. And I'm not going to bet my life on something that's not rock solid. I'm not that dumb. And I value my life far too much. So tell them about your city of refuge. I live in that word of God. I'm betting my life on it. So, and then I like this one. Do you care if what you just said is true or not? Some people don't care. They just actually hate the Bible. And they don't really want an argument. And those are people that are unrepentant guilty. Like they don't get refuge in the city. But there are some people that would say, yeah, if what I'm saying isn't true, I'd like to know that. Now you have a conversation. Would you want to know if what you're saying is true or not true? And then you know that people have a good heart about it. Because a lot of times we grow up, we hear lies. And we don't know any better. We grow up hearing them. I used to think that if you got too close to the toilet when you flushed it, you'd go down and you'd get sucked into the nether. And I thought that till I was like seven years old. So I would flush and run. Until one day my mom caught me and she's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't want to get caught. And she made me flush it and not run. It was the most terrifying moment in my life. I could feel it in my bones. When you've been taught or believed a lie for a long period of time, it is true to you. And you guys remember that from when you were kids, right? It's terrifying to maybe think that what you believed wasn't true. Have some mercy on that kid. Like, you know, do you want to know if it'll suck you under or not? Right? Grant had the same experience because I was a horrible dad. You guys know this story, right? So. I didn't want him standing next to the car because he was like this tall. So I'm like, boy, when I start that car, you don't want to be too close to it because it might suck you under. <laughs> Shouldn't have said it. Shouldn't have said it. Because then like three years later, I'm in the big Ford Expedition. Super t- and at that time, he was this tall, but I still couldn't see him. And, I, and I'm, we're getting out to the car, and I start it up, and Grant just starts bawling. And I'm like, Grant, what did I do? And he goes, you started the car, you almost sucked me under. Like I didn't care about him because he would wait for me to start the car and then he would run out to the car, which was nice because it kept him away from the tires. But it was just one of those moments. Have some mercy on people. Like, should we test if it sucks you under or not? Let's take the dog and put the dog over by the car. <laughs> and let's. And my mom could have done that. She could have taken Heather the dog and put her next to the car. Sorry, Heather, our dog's name was Heather. And she could have put the dog there and then flushed the toilet. I could have run and then I could have seen a confused dog and it would have challenged or created a cognitive dissonance to understand it. Show them the city of refuge. Ask if it's there. Don't have regards to persons. Verse 13. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. Like it doesn't matter if they're the governor of the state of Minnesota. You have all the power and strength and truth when you base it on the word of God. It doesn't matter who the person is in front of you. It doesn't matter if they're a talk show host. It doesn't matter if they think they're smarter than you or have pieces of paper that say they've done more classes than you. It doesn't matter how many books they've read. And I stand like Paul that I've read a lot of books. It doesn't matter how many books you've read. There's only one book that really has the truth in it. Trust that. So don't regard persons when you do it. Number three, one is city of refuge. Two is don't regard people when you do this. Don't try to worry about that. Three is make a careful inquiry. Verse 18, make a careful inquiry. Ask them where they got this from. I mean, in love, like, okay, where's the error? What does it look like? What verses? Which words? And then go off and do your own inquiry. Call around to two, three pastors that you know, and what do you think of this verse? What do you think of that? Right? What do you think about what this is? And when you hear stuff where you're not sure what it means, like, ask some people that you respect and trust and say, 
you know, I'm just curious what you think about this when you read it. Do some looking up online. You can always dig into things and do careful inquiry. Be your own Berean. Seek it out for yourself. Where is it? How does it work? Let me look into that. I'll get back to you in two, three days. I just want to study it for myself. Well, I'm saying this is how it, I believe that you're saying that. One person does not make it true. So I'm going to seek out more than just your witness on this. Not that I don't trust you, but I don't care about you like Jesus. I care about the truth. And that makes me somebody that God's going to respect because you're doing it the right way. Number four, verse 19, you shall do to them what they wanted done to you. This is where it gets fun, people. If you seek out the truth of the matter and you find that they are a liar and a false witness, all bets are off. Whatever their worldview is, you can mock it, you can make fun of it, you can do to them what they were about to do to the Word of God. And with love. <laughs> right? But for me, this is great stuff. So you can go in and you see Jesus do this, and this is where when you read it in the New Testament, it feels really harsh. But that line of, so did you actually read this for yourself? Or did you read some book that said this? Did you study this and find it out? Or did some stupid professor say this like they knew something? Like, where did you get this from? And then you can call them what it is. And if you want to take God down and God's word down a few notches, let me take down your source a few notches. I'm going to do to you what you were trying to do to the Bible. Your source is a cruel liar. Your source is misleading people down a pathway to destruction. That thing that you believed is cruel and violent towards the word of God. Stop doing it. Now, if they're a good godly person, they'll be like, holy moly, I didn't mean to do that. And you maybe want to back off on your language. So don't take every, take this in context with wisdom and grace. But I love this one, that source that you have, and it's not the person, right? We love the person, but the lie is horrible. And we want to go after that. And I don't need to be nice to that source because they're idiots. So what's the motive of the person I'm dealing with and where are they coming from? And if their motive is to just to knock down my faith with horrible, spurious sources, I get to knock down their faith. And it gets to be fair game. I've sought it out. I've done my inquiry. I've done my part. And I'm not going to just sit back and let you rip on God because I love God and I serve God. So let's set the table straight here. So foot for foot, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, verse 19. In the same way that the Bible has errors according to that person, I say your sources are flawed. Your sources have errors. Your reading of the Hebrew is a twisting of the Hebrew. There's problems with that source that you have. It's empty, it's false, it's cruel, and you shouldn't stake your life on it. Exactly what they were trying to say about the Bible. Don't, don't stake your life on that. I don't care if they've written eight books about it. It's not worth staking your life on. They're mistaken. And don't believe that and go that way. So we can play that game too. And this judging system, if you're a high priest and in the holy priesthood, you have a responsibility when you hear a lie to speak out against the lie. To not say anything is to put yourself in the same culpability of the liar. And to not deal with it makes you guilty of that thing that you just came across. This is tough because we don't get a choice sometimes. And I don't know if you've been in these situations or not, but you just hear it and you're like, I don't want to get into it. I don't want, no, please, no. And then you do the first due diligence. Did you really mean what you just said? Is that the real thing? Yeah, absolutely. I totally mean it. Really? Like, you want to go down there? Because I, I, I'm going to have to then do research. I'm giving up my 
I wanted to watch the football game tonight. Now I got to go do more Bible study. But I can't just let that one go because I'm staking my life on it. So do you want to know? If it's untrue, do you want to have a discussion? Do you even want to know if it's untrue? Or are you just happy believing all that nonsense? And that's a tough, I mean, and then kind of suddenly you get down it and you're like, no, no, I really want to have this discussion. And you're like, all right, here we go. Let's get into it. And then, you know, you can, and sometimes, here's a beautiful thing. Sometimes people go, oh, shoot, man, I repent. I'm going to walk away from that. And that's the right response. God, I don't want to be that person anymore. I want to stand on your truth. When there's a line drawn, I want to be on the God side of the line. I pick the Lord over this stuff that the world has to give. And I just choose, I, I base it based on the fruits. That's another thing. You look at like some of the secular philosophers and their life stories after they wrote their books, like a lot of them went mad and commit suicide and the fruits of their life are horrible. Like Nietzsche, Marx, like these people didn't live happy lives. So why are we basing things off of what they said? It's a lie. And it's a horrible lie because it's destructive. So verse 19, you put away this false stuff. We don't sit and dwell on Nietzsche because he was a dimwit. And he wrote like a big intelligent person, but I can write like a big intelligent person. It doesn't make me wise. It just means I know how to speak intelligent language. And I'm not doing a very good job of it in the last 30 seconds. Right? But I can play that game if you want to play that game. I can go to that level if you want to go to that level. I can do research journal articles with you and we can throw down. But I'm going to stake my life on this, not on that. I don't stake my life on the argument. I stake the, my life on my experience and my memory and what the word of God has recorded for me with other people's memories. Like it's a very rooted faith. It's not a leap of faith. Kierkegaard was mistaken. It's a faith based on evidence and fact and experience. And we root our faith in that. And we can have as much faith in the word of God as we can have in the chair that you're sitting on right now. You have experience that that chair is held up. It should hold up forever, only God's chairs never break. And that's a promise that God's made and he's kept all his other promises. You can have faith to sit on that chair. And anyone who says you can't is mistaken. So don't water down the church or water down the name of God by spreading that stuff in the church community. Stop it. And sometimes you can tell people, you know, it's okay to not call yourself a Christian. If you really believe those things, why would you be a Christian? Just don't. Stop wrecking our reputation by walking around saying those things that are in direct contradiction to the Word of God. I love you. I want the best for you. But you're not on my team. You're on somebody else's team. And I want to be on this team. And I hope that's really controversial tonight so we have great discussion. If I can turn my other cheek on a personal offense, and I should, I don't know if I, that means that I have to, that that excuses me from the inquiry and the due diligence when I'm in a court of justice for the name of God. Those are different kinds of things. You attack me, I don't matter. I gave up my life a long time ago. Doesn't, my, I'm dead. I'm a manslayer. I killed me. And me is gone and dead and there's a new creation that's in me. But if you want to take a shot at my God, then we have to have an inquiry. We have to have a due diligence. Let's have some process here. Right? And the best way to do this is when you hear people at work and they use the Lord's name in vain, like the traditional using it, they're just saying it left and right like it doesn't matter. And you just call them on it and say, you know, I serve that God. If I said that about your God, wouldn't that bother you after a while? 
And that's one of those things where you're like, do I really want to pick this fight? And at some point, the Holy Spirit just tells you it's time to, right now, it's time to have that conversation. And we all know people that do that. It's like part of the English language today is to take the Lord's name in vain. And it's on TV and it's on movies. It's everywhere we listen to. And so at some point you're just like, wow, maybe we should get into that if that name has meaning or not. So if we say we respect all religions, can you respect mine and stop using that name in front of me in that kind of way? But then now you're a legalist, you're judgmental, and it's like, I'm not judging you. I'm just asking for respect and love and shalom between us. And is it okay for me to ask for shalom if you want shalom too and we can have it go two ways? And you can do that with grace and love. Both of these things, turning your other cheek and having this inquiry kind of thing, they're both acts of love. And that's what I would argue tonight. We could talk about this. I think they're both acts of love if they're done right. And they should both be done with the responding to the Holy Spirit in that moment. They should both be done with prayer as much as you can pray in the moment when you're doing it. But both of them, turning the other cheek and having this kind of eye for eye kind of courtroom thing, they're both also, they're acts of love, but they're also acts of war. And that's where we go in the next chapter. It goes right into war. And sometimes you have to have battle with people. And sometimes you got to get into it and get messy with people. But I think I've taken way too long on chapter 19. So Deuteronomy 20, we'll wait till next week. Uh, but that's where we go next. It's, we're going right into like, sometimes the inquiry doesn't work out and there's just going to be battles. And what do you do when you have to get into those battles? And what does that look like? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to live as peacefully with people as we can. And Lord, we just live in a world that is so against you in so many ways. And Lord, we want to love our brothers and sisters and our family and our friends and the people you've put in our life, Lord. We want to love our neighbors and we want to live with as much peace as we can with them, as Peter says, Lord. We want shalom. Um, Lord, we also know that you've called us to be your witness and your light in this world. Uh, you've called us to do inquiry. You've called us to find things out for ourselves. Uh, Lord, there's nothing that I should ever say in a teaching that isn't tested throughout the week by the people listening to it. Lord, may we seek things out for ourselves and seek God's truth. And we are going to have different ways to read and process these things, Lord. But at the end of the day, know that our heart, and we stand before you, Lord, with just exposed hearts. Know that we love you. Know that all we want to do is serve you. And Lord, we don't want to love people on a highway to hell, Lord. We want to love them into the kingdom. Uh, we want the path to be straight, the stumbling blocks to be removed. We want your refuge to be something that all people can walk into. Uh, we know that the harvest is plenty, plentiful and the, and, the, and the harvesters are few. And Lord, people don't repent if they don't have to face their own lies. And if we really love people, sometimes it takes that hard work of working through those things with people. And if we love people and we want to show your love and your grace with them, sometimes we have to uh, embrace the leper, Lord. And at the same time, sometimes we have to get into it with the Pharisees. And both of them are acts of love. And we know, Lord, that in, in this world, uh, that's also combat. And that the way we love people and care about people is something that people want to argue about and get into. Lord, I just pray for grace in those situations. Never give us a situation we can't handle. Never put us into a conversation where we can't, express your love to people and your caring and compassion for them. Lord, help us to love justice. Uh, we live in a country right now where that's being debated on both sides of the fence. 
Uh, Lord, we live in a country where justice just seems to be abandoned, but we know that you are not abandoned us. You'll never leave us and you'll never forsake us. Uh, we know that you love justice and you love a just society and you love when the weak are protected and guarded and they're made strong. Uh, we know that you show no partiality to persons, uh, that you are blind to that, Lord, as justice is blind to that. Uh, and Lord, we shouldn't either. We shouldn't care where people come from, what they look like, how much money they have, Lord. We should just love people um, as you love people. And if we want to be more like you, we have to train ourselves to do that uh, so that we can express caring, compassion, and love to anybody that you put in our path. So help us to do that, Lord. Help us to just get over ourselves and to take on the work that you've given us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for cities of refuge that we don't even have to physically run because that would exhaust some of us. Uh, Lord, thank you that our cities of refuge are spiritually right next door and they're so close and so near. And Lord, that you come near to us and you come into our lives. Thank you for that gift. Um, Lord, help us to be people of truth that speak truth and tell truth and demand truth from the people around us. Lord, help us to be... Uh, the salt of the earth and to keep and preserve uh, those things that are good and those things that are holy and those things that are true. Teach us to set our mind on those things. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.